Hello, welcome to This Is Autism, the podcast from the Northeast Autism Society. The process you go through after diagnosis is a reevaluation of your life and a reframing of your life. One of the things we often hear is that person is weird. And there's a connotation there that that's bad, that weirdness is bad, and that being similar to other people is something desirable. And actually, we need to make space for people to be weird. Anecdotally, I hear parents are told that their child can't be masking because they're a boy. They can't. There's no way that they could mask all day. There's no way that they could seem that happy and not and and not be okay. Each month. We explore subjects that really matter to autistic people, their families and the people who care about them. And our first show last month tackled a huge subject, masking. So we wanted to carry that on and look at how families can spot when somebody is masking um, and how best they can offer support. Our guests to help us unpick this are Kieran Rose, an autistic speaker and campaigner who blogs as the autistic advocate and has three neurodivergent children. Amy Pearson, an autistic psychologist who works at Sunderland University. And Jodie Smitten, an independent specialist who works with autistic children and their families and their schools and has autistic children of her own. I'm Julie from the Northeast Autism Society, and I began today by asking Kieran why, outside the autistic community, we've only um, just begun to recognise and discuss masking, and why it's important that we've finally done so. This is something that the autistic community, like many things that happen within the autistic community, we've been talking about this for 30, 40, 50 years. Um, These are the narratives that are being described in research now have been discussions that go back decades. So, you know, and it's a really prime example of firstly how, you know, the group being researched isn't actually being listened to at all. Um, And that non-autistic people haven't picked up these narratives, despite the fact that autistic people have been shouting about them for a very very long time so it it just goes to show how far research is behind the community that they're actually pronouncing themselves as experts over yeah and public knowledge as well is so far behind and it's not until we start listening to the autistic community um that we learn and understand things like this um do you think it's important that we've finally starting to catch up there and it is being talked about publicly. Uh, Kieran? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Fundamentally, yes. Um, if, If I think about the experiences that I had at school, autistic children despite the fact that we have had all these awareness campaigns and um the 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 public are more consciously aware of autistic people although that comes with all the myths and stigma and things like that um that actually nothing really fundamentally has changed because autistic children now are having exactly the same experiences as autistic children had 20 30 40 50 60 years ago so they're they're, they're it's so 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 important that this narrative is firstly within academia um because what happens in academia society follows kind of 10 years 20 years later further down the line so we need academia to to be looking at these things in order for it to soak out into the media into culture and into society but secondly on top of that we need academia to be getting these narratives right 
otherwise it creates whole new levels of stigma and myth and we're starting we're probably going to talk about that in a bit and i know amy amy and i and jody are very passionate about this getting this right that that those um, misconceptions around masking are already out there in the mainstream narrative, in schools, um, in professional kind of understanding and so on and so forth. So that already we're having to, even though it's a very new academic narrative, we're already having to unpick it because it's going in very, very misconceptualized and misperceived directions. Uh, yeah, just to um, probably emphasize what Kieran said, but, you know, the question about, you know, is it important that, that we're talking about this stuff um you know masking in particular i'm i get several emails a day from families who are desperately trying to um get their child the support that they need um to recover their child from burnout uh to get their child um accurately identified um and masking is a massive um hindrance to that with the lack of understanding that's within within schools the lack of understanding that's within gp surgeries they're the gatekeepers to identification um and you know referrals of these children for assessments are constantly being batted back because um you know, a lot of the criteria is now that, it ha that you know, the child has to pr present as autistic in more than one setting. And um, if you've got a child that's masking in school, masking at Brownie Group, masking at Scouts, masking at, you know, wherever they're going and only ever presenting at home um, has massive implications on getting that child um, supported. Uh, and, and, you know, then there's a whole other topic that leads on from that around parent blame, um, which you probably don't have time to go into right now. But um, we, we have to we have to be talking about masking. We have to be doing the research. We have to be getting um, the information into mainstream environments in, you know, to those gatekeepers, because quite literally children's lives depend on it. I, you know, it's, it's massive. Talking about this is absolutely vital because i fundamentally believe that masking is at the heart of the autism narrative that it is the the intersectional core of everything that is related to autism because how we are treated as human beings or sorry how we are dehumanized as human beings and and how we are not treated as human beings is right at the very heart of who we are as autistic people and it's what impacts most on our identity and that's really what we're talking about here. We're talking about stigma, marginalization, dehumanization, trauma. This is really fundamentally what we're, what, we're, what we're speaking about here. And those are things that are given to us. They're not things that exist within us. They're not things that we are born with. These are things that are handed to us, again, by a society that deems itself inclusive, but isn't at all. It gatekeeps access to it. Yeah, so it, you did a campaign a few years back. Is that is that why, Kieran? Yeah, if I if I were to do it again, I would do it very differently um, because I think that some of the narratives that came off weren't um, advertised strongly enough. It was called taking the mask off, um, and uh, the name within itself um, was uh, a little confusing and misleading because. You can't just take your mask off. Um, it was the it was a it was a play on words. It was taking the mask off of autistic masking. That was that was the kind of narrative behind it. But there are many people who can't be authentic 
as much as they would like to be and as much as they can try to be because of their multiply marginalized backgrounds. So people of color, um, people who are queer, um, people who are visibly autistic, you know, that, that are treated negatively because they are more visibly autistic. So there are certain groups of people who, for whom masking actually is paradoxically saving their lives whilst also harming them. Um, you know, so so and they don't have any choice in that. So as a as a white middle middle effectively kind of late working class, lower middle class working man, um, I have a lot of privilege in order to be able to say that, you know, I can I can make safe spaces for myself and I can do certain things in order to minimize my masking. Mm. Yeah. Jody? Yeah, I just wanted to follow on um with Kieran's uh mention of um, it not being safe to unmask. And I think that's a really, really important point that um, is often neglected because, um, you know, we talk a lot about masking, you know, and the negative consequences, um, but it's not safe to unmask. It's not always safe to be your authentic self. You put yourself um, in really risky positions at times. And that, you know, that that comes in all sorts of um dimensions but I, I think particularly for me coming in at this from um uh, a parent of autistic children an autistic parent of autistic children but also supporting other parents of autistic children is that um the systems that sit around keeping our children safe and the systems that sit around protecting our children's mental health or supporting our children's mental health still don't understand autistic experience so um i'll just give a personal example um uh, my child had a social care assessment recently for a, their EHCP and I had a social worker in the house who um, was was actually, you know, she was fantastic, um, really taking on board a lot of what I said. Um, I did very um, diplomatically challenge a few things, uh, but towards the end, she asked to see my child's bedroom with his permission and with my permission. And, you know, by this point, I felt relatively comfortable with her. So I said, yeah, you know, as long as he's fine with that, that's fine. And she said, oh, I, you know, I know it's a bit awkward. It's just a tick box. And really, we just have to check that, that, that he's got a bed. Um, and I said, well, actually, he does have a bed, but um, it's actually particularly common for neurodivergent people to sleep on the floor. It's 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 grounding. And I know Christy Forbes has um, done a brilliant um, piece on this on her Facebook page. Uh, my uh, my my middle child quite often sleeps not only on the floor, but actually under her under her bed. Um if you came in and, and saw a bed set up under a bed, you would have a, a particular view about that. Um, I was really felt really confident and able to unmask in that situation and be really authentic. Actually, yeah, he has a bed, but there's for us sleeping on the floor isn't a, a sign of bad parenting. Um, a lot of parents wouldn't be able to do that. A lot of parents would be in a position where if their child was sleeping on the floor, they would immediately be deemed unfit as parents. And there's loads of examples of this. You know, one of my children doesn't manage clothing. So even in the winter, they will wear minimal clothing and quite, and actually all last winter, a pair of sandals, uh, unbrushed hair. Um, they, the, my youngest child is my most probably authentic because we've known that he's autistic from a very young age. He's not been put into the school system. Um, that's that's who he is um but i have to be really careful as to 
where almost where he's seen if I take him to certain appointments I have to be really aware that actually if I take him to an appointment in the middle of December with a pair of sandals on and a pair of pajama shorts and t-shirt that's not always the cleanest that's going to be judged in a very different way to how it actually is um and that's just one sort of small example of how it's not always safe to be authentic um you know, there's loads, as uh, Luke Bearden talks about an example of a young person that, that was being very authentically themselves, um, I think, during a meltdown and then got sectioned. Um, because there was this, you know, there's that massive misunderstanding about um, also, uh, autistic meltdowns. Uh, and I talking... just, I... Sorry. Sorry, no, go on. No, you sorry, you carry on. <laughs> I was going to say you're talking about um, misconceptions around autism there. You've also mentioned misconceptions about masking. Um, I think Kieran mentioned it as well. What misconceptions do you think there are around masking? Uh, anecdotally, I hear um, parents are told that their child can't be masking because they're a boy. Um, uh. They can't. There's no way that they could mask all day. Um, there's no way that they could seem that happy and not, and, and not be okay. Um, I don't know, Kieran and Amy could probably add loads more mm. around this. Uh, that it's choice, um, you know, work with lots of children, still working with lots of children who within certain environments are deemed manipulative. Um, and if you are faced with what you believe to be a manipulative child, all you're going to do in that circumstances is push that a little bit harder challenge them a little bit harder and it's really damaging um mm. and it's a really horrible thing to be accused of like I'm, I'm always talking about actually they're not being manipulative they're keeping themselves safe there's a massive difference um and again it's about shifting those narratives yeah and do you ever find if, if people are masking all day and then um when they get home you know the 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 they might um, go into meltdown or have, you know, and it's only their parents that see that. Are the parents ever accused of making things up or exaggerating? Oh, all, all the time. I mean, autistic parents are at massive risk of um, parent blame and fabrica um, FII, fabricated induced illness. Um, you know, and there's research on it. There's... Um, Fiona Gullen-Scott has done some brilliant research on the risk of FII. I covered it in one of my assignments. Um, and actually what was massively frightening and shocking for me is when I read the NICE guidelines on fabricated and induced illness, it could very easily describe an autistic child that's masking. Um, you know, it's talk about the, 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 the symptoms only present around the parent. Um just trying to think of some of the others off the top of my head. It was a while ago I did that. Uh, the parent being more knowledgeable than the professional. Well, you know, I, the, 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 without sounding big-headed, I fall into that category quite quite easily. And when I'm really ranting about my own children, I quite often say that to the professionals that are coming into my home and, and um, assessing my children. Um, but equally, you know, autistic parents, we you know, we like we like to do our research. Um, so we do, we do go out there and seek answers and problem solve and join the dots. Uh, and we're very, you know, we can be very in tune and instinctive with our children. So, you know, we, and we can, you know, we, we are, 
we're really passionate about our children. So we can come across as being quite insistent. But I mean, mainly that's because we have to. We have to be shouting loud in order to be heard. Yeah. And again, that's misjudged. Thank you. Uh, Kieran or Amy, is there anything you want to add about misconceptions about masking? I'll jump in here quickly. I think one of the misconceptions that really annoys me, and I, I know it annoys Kieran as well quite a bit, um, is the, the idea that autistic people who have co-occurring learning disabilities or higher support needs don't mask. That if you are always more obviously autistic to other people, that you can't mask and that isn't something that you'd experience. And it's very much not the case. We know that a lot of people in particular who've experienced things like forms of behavioral therapy that are focused on minimizing autistic behaviors, what they're doing is teaching people to mask. So you often have people who have been taught to mask and then we're saying, those people don't. And it makes absolutely no sense. All it does is kind of seek to cause a bit of a discrepancy between what are perceived to be higher functioning people or perceived to be lower functioning people. These really arbitrary, harmful labels um, and kind of offensive terminology that's used to minimize the experiences of distress, regardless of how your autism looks or, or manifests to other people. So I think that's one of my huge bugbears and everything that Jordy mentioned was spot on. So things like gender, um, yeah, it's really infuriating. Kieran, is there anything you'd like to add? Also, there's been the exclusion of other autistic people um, who people think, because of the, this idea that masking is only about hiding, um, when in actual fact, this ex notion of this exaggerated personality and meeting people's expectations, when somebody has an expectation that they're going to be treated negatively because that's their previous experience, sometimes all they can do is play into that negativity. Sometimes that might mean being the class clown. Sometimes that might mean presenting with challenging behavior because that's the expectation of how people will see you because that's their previous experience of you. So you play into that and you get it gets it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So we need, really need to kind of pick apart this narrative that and the, the name masking is when itself is a, is a kind of a misnomer because it isn't all about covering up. Sometimes it is about exaggerating. Um but but in a professional narrative, that part of that narrative wouldn't even be recognized as even existing. So you know so there's so much more work that needs to be done. Thank you. So even though we've started talking about masking, there's a long, long way to go and we need to listen more to the autistic community. We're going to look at now um, how to spot if your child is masking, if you're a parent or carer, or even um, look into yourself um, and things that can be done. Um, if I could just start with you, Jody. How can parents or carers know that um, their child is masking? I think this is a tricky one because I think it will be um, different for each child. But um, I've sort of just jotted down a few notes. Um, so if you've got a child who suddenly changes in their expression um, and quite often hear parents say it's as soon as we get to the car it's as soon as they walk towards me in the playground it's as soon as we come through the front door that their child will <clears throat> possibly go into meltdown become really really distressed and I've seen it in my own children where um, I've had this conversation with lots of parents where 
you know what sort of day your child has by the child that w- is walking towards you as they leave class. They say goodbye to their friends and then they're walking towards you and their facial expression changes instantly. And you know straight away that your child isn't okay. Um, and I think it's really important, I say this to a lot of parents, like trust your instincts because if you are an autistic parent of an autistic child and n- nobody's aware of that and you're not even aware of that, you will have followed some very... Um, neurotypical guidebooks around your child and your parenting um and that goes against your instincts as an autistic parent to autistic children so we're we're very often um end up on a pathway where we are taught not to trust our instincts or that our instincts are wrong so I quite often say to parents tr- like trust try to like what I call this rewilding like try, try to go back to your instincts if you can find them um and try to trust them and speak to other um, autistic people, parents, communities about what you're experiencing with your child um, to sort of try and seek that validation. Um, but yeah, sudden changes in expression and 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 a different, a two, a, literally a different child from safe place to non-safe place. Um, I suppose it's really important to point out here is that not all children have a safe place. Not all autistic adults have a safe place. Um and those children will become very internalized, um, possibly very withdrawn, possibly very not wanting to leave their rooms. Um, very much like Kieran described, you know, he had he had his safe haven of his bedroom. Um, so, and actually, you know, looking back to my eldest when she first started school, she would come in from school and just go to her room. And I remember feeling really, um, I didn't know she was autistic at this point, really feeling like, oh, I've not seen her all day. And now she's just going to her room. And she was actually doing that to decompress, um, but didn't recognize that at the time and sort of trying to sort of coax her out a little bit. And, but no, but also actually instinctively knowing that she needed that, she needed that downtime. Um, Lots of, um, I'm going to use inverted commas, so refusal, um, you know, unable to manage um, their usual social activities uh, due to exhaustion. Um, My youngest, when they did spend some time at preschool, the days where they weren't there, um, literally could not move them off the sofa. And this was age three, four. Couldn't move them off the sofa, didn't want to go anywhere, do anything, just literally needed a screen and the sofa. so you you know you'll see these really high levels of exhaustion in them as well. Uh, I don't know whether Kieran or Amy's got anything to add to that. Or it might look, might look like really like exhaustion, um, like to flip the other way completely. So it might be I, I remember kind of when I was working throughout my twenties, literally coming home and collapsing each day at the end of the day and falling asleep until the evening, um, and then getting up and uh, if I could wake up, having something to eat like really late because that was kind of you know that was my narrative there so um so it can look like it's more like recognizing that there is a different state rather than a different kind of behavior or a different this or a different that it's my child is one way at school and then when they're at home they are another way and there is a tangible noticeable difference there so it's just being really kind of focusing in on those things and and even things like uh dysregulation around sensory stuff as well so if if you find during the holidays that actually the 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 
um, there is a difference between their sensory perceptions to while they're at school. So it might be that while they're at school because they're working harder, their their you know noise might cause them more pain, or they might struggle with that more, or you know, or different smells or different tastes or, or whatever. But actually, when you get to the holidays because they're slightly more relaxed, then those things aren't impacting them on as much. So they're not dysregulated as much. So it's really it's really training yourself to look out for these key differences and kind of and mapping them and keeping a record of those things as well and actually saying like actually here is my evidence for that that there is significant change you're just not recognizing it as significant change because that's not the lens that you're looking through yeah amy so i i just wanted to add thinking about things like routine and regulation when i spoke to my mum when i was going through the diagnostic process one of the things she talked about was noticing some of the routines that i set up for myself so particularly as a teenager I went to sixth form, which I absolutely loved. It was a great environment, um, and I, I thrived there. But I was still always really exhausted when I came home at the end of the day. And she said she remembered one of the things I would do was come home, get changed, put my headphones in, and go straight out for a walk and take myself out by myself, listen to some music, decompress. And then I would come home, I would change into the exact same outfit that I put in every day when I got home from college. Because you can't wear the same dirty clothes every day to, you know, socialize with other people but you can do that in your own house i would come home put my uniform on and then sit and read and just disengage from everything else and so even though that wasn't maybe as noticeable as as kieran was saying something like having a meltdown being able to self-regulate might mean that parents aren't necessarily noticing because you've come up with your own problem solving strategies so just being aware of the kind of strategies that your child might use um to decompress or to try and you know regain some energy at the end of the day that might be a bit of a cue as to what's going on as well as well as these kind of maybe more visible signals yeah absolutely and my son comes home from work wraps himself in a duvet and watches telly for two hours and I always used to worry about that and now I think well that's his way of sort of decompressing after the day uh Jodie uh, yeah, just following on from what Kieran and Amy said, really, is that um, I often get called in by parents um, when a child is masking in school um, and I go in and do um, a discrete observation. Um, and I think recognising that um, expression change isn't um, a complete lack of any expression so schools will say no we don't see anything they're fine when they're here um they're blah 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 blah. and i'll go in and i'll observe and it's actually i think this is possibly linked to double empathy is that i can observe a child who i know that the teacher has told me is absolutely fine and i can see that they're not fine so i can see that rather than wrapping themselves up in a duvet they're getting their sleeves and they're wrapping it around their their arms or their um uh fiddling with their fingers underneath the table because on top of the table means that they're going to get told off for fiddling or they are kicking their shoe on and off of their foot or they are um i I could just keep going on if i could empty my brain more effectively um there are so many ways that that the expression can change and it's not always about a complete lack of expression it's a more discreet stim like stims are a form of communication um and i see a lot of that in school from the changes in how a child communicates so for example um communication is one that we've not really touched on but 
I mask massively in, in terms of my forms of communication um, because when I'm at home with my children or with my partner, we don't necessarily use words. Like we can literally just grunt at each other or make noises at each other. Um, and we all know what each other means. So why, you know, words take a lot of energy for me. I don't believe that they're my first language and I don't believe that they are for my children either. Um, and I had this actually, sorry, going off slight tangent, had this, I went into a school to do an observation on a child and the, the child um, was likely autistic and went up to their TA with their um, sand covered hands and just made a noise. And the TA said to the child, use your words. What is, what is it you're asking me? And this is a child who was really very um, mute in school, very quiet in school and at home, very bouncy and chatty. Um, and so I said to the TA, you know what, what he's communicating to you. So can you not, could, it would be helpful to him and, and lessen his anxiety if you accepted that form of communication. You know he doesn't like having messy hands. So he's probably overwhelmed by that sensation. So using words is going to be really tricky for him at that time. Um, so actually accepting that we don't always use words to communicate. But again, because we we are able to be verbal, it's expected all the time. Um, I can't remember where I was going back with that. But but yeah, going back into schools and doing observations, it's 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 seeing the changes and it's it is about teachers and schools and other professionals recognizing how we communicate and that we don't always communicate distress, overwhelm, excitement through words. Sometimes it does come out in our stims. And um, I quite often go back and say, actually, I could see that during maths, the, the, the child was actually quite distressed because I could feel it from them and I could recognise that that stim was a distressed stim. Um, could you just, ex sorry, and I think could you really, just explain it, what a stim is if anybody's not heard that term? It's a self stimulating behaviours I would short for um, so it's just a way that we move our bodies um, or use our voices or in order to I, I use it a lot to process so I'm sat here squidging something and um, picking up my skin <laughs> um, because it helps me process it helps me um, make sense of what's in my head and to get it out because words don't come that easy for me um, it can be a way to regulate emotions. So it can be a way for us to feel calmer um, or even calm excitement as well, because even excitement can feel quite overwhelming. So I quite often rock when I'm not feeling okay. Um, it, yes, yeah, it's, it, it's an expression or uh, it, it always has a function for me, whether it's calming or processing, mainly my two functions. Um, and and it's really common. Uh, almost, I would say, almost all autistic people stim. I think. I think all. Pe I mean, all people stim. Um, we just have different. Again, we express our stims differently, um, and they're often misjudged. Um, and and that's the trouble when, where where there's this sort of overlap sometimes between masking and um, double empathy is that these children are still masking, but they are. Um, stimming in a way sometimes that would be deemed more socially acceptable 
girls that twiddle with their hair, fiddle with earrings, boys that twiddle with their hair is probably less socially acceptable than girls stimming with their hair. Um, but, but, but a lot of people wouldn't necessarily recognise that as a child trying to regulate themselves. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Kieran, did you want to add something? As an autistic person surrounded by non-autistic people, as you would generally be as an autistic child in a classroom, um, all of the people in your class are not experiencing what you're experiencing, including the teacher. So if the teacher's watching you and you are doing exactly what Jodie described, you're expressing your distress in a very suppressed way, and that comes out through um, through like hair fiddling or jigging or fiddling or or, or, or what, however that looks, the teacher is not going to see that as an expression of distress. They're not going to see that communication. Jodie can walk into a classroom and she can see that as distress because she has also experienced that distress. So it is she recognises that behaviour. But there's another level of that as well, that if you look at autistic people through a lens of culture, we have our own body language, which is recognisable and relatable to other autistic people. We have our own ways of communicating, which are recognisable and relatable to other autistic people. The way that we exist is recognisable. I can walk down the street and pick out autistic people who probably don't even know that they're autistic themselves, just by the way that they're moving and holding themselves or how they're communicating. You know, so so there is a, a level of empathy that an autistic professional can have in observing autistic children and being able to see things that a non-autistic professional cannot see. That's not to say that the non-autistic professional isn't good at their jobs. It's just that they have limitations because that's not their experience. And what you've stressed here very much is that it's not just for parents and carers to spot when a child is masking. It's for other professionals like teachers and teaching assistants and the medical profession as well. Absolutely. And it, it's the, the and it's interesting that you bring that up because parents might be able to recognize it. But of course, then if professionals don't, again, there's a level of hierarchy and power displacement there because parents don't have the power to actually do anything. They don't have much control over their children's experiences within school. They're reliant on professionals who don't see the problem in the first place and don't see the problems that they create unwittingly through their through their privilege and their lack of empathy. So and lack of training and lack of support and so on and so forth and this can change this is really simply changed by better training by better investment in 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 funding and and things like that this can absolutely change and by promoting autistic professionals to be alongside non-autistic professionals and validating the voices of different marginalized groups but there's an unwillingness to change because of that privilege and lack of recognizing that there is even a problem in the first place mm. georgie i just wanted to sort of uh, bring that back really to uh, what came out of uh, the research that I did. Hang on, I'm just looking through my notes and it's just literally a scrappy bit of paper and I can't see where I've written it down. Um, but I know anyway. Uh, so, you know, just from the voices of young people that are talking about this stuff, it, it, and, and like Kieran's just described, change isn't like rocket science. The, the three themes that came out of... Um, of what young people were asking or what young people wanted adults to know about masking or, or what they wanted to see change was um, that they want to be listened to. They want, so they want better communication. They want to be involved in the decisions about themselves. Um, and they want um, empathy. 
they they want it's literally as simple as that and um while I was having this conversation with one young person and and they were so brilliantly articulating this to me I was sort of started smirking and then I was like just to point out I'm not I'm not smirking at you I'm I'm smirking at the irony like we're both sat here as two autistic people communicating in this way and we're saying that actually what we want from the non-autistic professionals is empathy and better communication and yet we're the ones deemed not to have that um it actually opened a really nice conversation for me to talk to them about double empathy um at which point i stopped recording because we'd gone off on a massive tangent but uh it's it is it it isn't rocket science um it really is as simple as that and if 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 you know this is coming from autistic young people it's it needs to be heard. Did you want to add something, Kieran? It brings me back to what, what I brought up in the the, the, the the first podcast when we started this conversation around kind of the hubris of humanity that, that we all have to be the same and we all have to adhere to the same social standards, the same, behavior, same behavioral standards. We all have to think and feel in the same way. The expressions of our bodies have to be in the, exactly the same way. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's nearly eight billion of us we're not all identical human beings we're not composite copies of each other um we are all very different and within that there are groups of people who are very very different from other groups of people in the way that they think and feel and express and so on and that's nature that that's 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 biodiversity it's very very simple and it's you know become the paradigm of neurodiversity which which lots of people are talking about and recognizing now but within an education system which is framed around conformity. It's framed around teaching everybody in exactly the same way to do exactly the same things and come out at the end of it with exactly the same qualifications. Um, everything is focused on that perfect human being, that one way of existing. And then you get people who don't fit that narrative which actually is the majority. There's a very small cohort of people that actually are able to exist perfectly well within a mainstream school setting. Um, and you get people who are neurodivergent or are disabled in some way or have different things going on in their lives or are marginalized from a marginalized group who can't meet that middle of the road kind of need. But they become the problem. They're identified as having deficits. They're identified as having broken bits. And when you talk to lots of professionals about autistic children, it's very much the behavioral lens that they talk through, talk through and think through in terms of, well, if we give them social skills training, then they'll act more human. If we give them this, they'll act more human. If they do this, they'll become more human. And it's all about overcoming something which doesn't need to be overcome in the first place. If there was just an acceptance that different people exist and different people have different needs. And that's not to say that there aren't certain groups that are that have disabilities and need extra support. I view being autistic as, ha as having a disability. I'm disabled by the barriers that are put in place by society around me, but there are aspects of my self and my being and my neurology which are also disabled and nothing society does is going to change that. Absolutely. And in the, this kind of context that you've described so well there, how could a parent or a carer broach this with a child and help them? What can they do to help them? Jodie, perhaps. Um, help them recognise their masking. I just uh, and help them 
help them uh, deal with all this or help them relieve the pressure or oh my gosh i mean that's 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 massive uh, there needs to be so much so much change and it's not really just possible for um you know that puts so much onus on the child to take on the world um you know as as a parent um advocating for your child um strongly uh, is really really important but equally very difficult um uh, normalizing you know giving them that safe space make sure that at, at, at least at home they have that acceptance that you know that you as a parent have that understanding that curiosity around their presentation that curiosity curiosity around the um, meltdowns and the um, jittery hyper child that comes out of school and is like a Tasmanian devil around your house um you, you know and explaining that to them you know oh as a parent you go on this journey of understanding of your child um you know you go on these talks and you you know you, you listen to people and you read books um that's not always that we, we're not always great at passing that information on to our children so we're going on this journey of discovery about them not with them um but but talking, you know, saying I can see that you're not feeling good, like having uh, I always talk about the um, pace approach, which is designed for uh, trauma children. If you've got a child that masks, there's there's a level of trauma there. So having that playfulness, that acceptance, that curiosity, that empathy around your child and, and going on that journey with them Um and that would be bespoke to every child. Every child communicates differently and, and has different needs and presents differently. Um, you know, starting with that one safe space um, and, you know, and, and the people that you allow into that safe space. And this is a really difficult conversation sometimes for me to have with parents when they're talking about, oh, but, but grandma comes over and she makes these comments or then um, this, that and the other. And I'm like, they that person's not safe at the moment for your child because they're actually adding to the trauma and the damage and the the self-esteem and all all of that that they're, they're not they're not building your child up and they're not supporting you um to the point where I developed a talk I had so many parents coming to me saying could you speak could you do could you do a session with my mum or could you do a session with auntie so-and-so or could you do a session with granddad or whatever and I just developed a talk that I was like here we go just send them this and it 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 turns into a bit of a plea because I come in it from from a parent myself where I'm like actually we need you we need you to be somebody that we can trust with our children and that our child can trust to be safe and accepted around you um, and if you have got people in your life that, that aren't ready to do that or aren't able to do that, then you have to put your child's well-being first. And you have to say, I'm, I'm, you know, basically avoid them or don't invite them around or don't allow them into your child's safe space. Um, but, you know, extending on that, you know, we would love schools to be safe places for all children. Unfortunately, they're not. And we know how difficult it is to advocate for their needs. Um, in those environments that, like Kieran said, are, are, aren't set up for anything but this this one type of person. Thank you. And Kieran, you wanted to add to that. There are some 
children don't know not to say it, but it, you know, but but then get punished for saying it. Um, and having boundary, all of us as adults have, I would imagine, even all of us in this room. I, I know two people quite well in this room. Um, that 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 we've grown up into adults that actually have really struggled with boundaries with other people and struggled with relationships and cutting people who are harmful to us and who cause us problems out of our lives. And that's because we were never taught as children what good boundaries are and what healthy, respectful boundaries are. We were taught as children, you know, do as your parents say, do as your teachers say, do as this, do as that. We're not bringing up children. We are bringing up people who are going to be adults. And we want our adults to have healthy relationships with people. We want our adults to have good mental health. We want our adults to have autonomy and control over their lives and to be able to be authentic, not to the point of impinging on other people's authenticness, but to have respect for other people's boundaries as well and, and to be whole like that. But we don't do that. That's not what we do. We put boundaries in with children to stop them from doing X, Y, and Z. And it's And even when it comes to getting that diagnosis, as parents... It's not our children who are given a diagnosis. We are handed a diagnosis as parents of our children. And then we are expected to go and explain that to our children. Now, I'm fortunately of the privilege where I understand these narratives and can explain it to my children in a way which they can understand and has helped them and supported them. I know Jodie has done exactly the same thing as her children have grown older, and Jodie's understanding has changed um, around that as well. But so many parents out there only have the myths, only have the stereotypes, only are handed the negativity. And often those myths and stereotypes and negativity conflict with their actual feelings about their children who know that their children aren't the stereotype, know that their children aren't negative and aren't expressing bad behavior and stuff like that, that their children are distressed and dysregulated, but their parents aren't armed with the right information in order to be able to support them properly. And they're not surrounded by professionals who have the knowledge to be able to support the parents and then the children properly so like jody um working with someone else i've developed a training program for children to and for parents you know for parents to go through with their kids to uh, a basic version of my kind of big adult course that that guides them through the different parts of what it means to be autistic and what people will think about you and how they define you and stuff like that because nobody's ever done that before which is absolutely crackers why has nobody done anything to support the child? The only support, and I say that word in inverted commas, that's given to children is training for them not to be autistic, is training for them to be an authentic and not have autonomy and agency, but to actually say, you being who you are isn't good enough. We need you to act like all these other people over here. And there's a fundamental flaw in that and how the world is not recognizing this, it, it pains me because it's so simple and obvious Thank you. And as you rightly point out, I'm saying, what can parents and carers do? And you're saying, well, the onus isn't, you know, just on them. It's it's society as a whole. So just to wrap up, could perhaps, Amy, if you could just say, what would you like to see change in a concrete way that might sort of alleviate the kind of things we've been talking about this morning? an excellent question and one I think that has a, a really big answer um, not big in terms of long but big in terms of it, it's an exponentially uh, huge thing to, to deal with which is change the way people approach difference um, one of the things that Jordi mentioned earlier on and that we've certainly found in our work is that 
when we talk about people, regardless of whether we know they're autistic or not, or, you know, kind of neurodivergent or disabled or different, one of the things we often hear is that person is weird. And there's a connotation there that that's bad, that weirdness is bad, and that being similar to other people is something desirable. And actually, we need to make space for people to be weird, for people to act in ways that is is different or a little bit strange um, or unexpected, as long as those people are not actively harming others with the things that they are doing and the ways that they are existing in the world. If we make it more acceptable to be weird, it, it doesn't necessarily matter whether that person has a label or not or a diagnosis because there is space for them to be themselves and to explore what that means. And I think that we can do, you know, as many educational sessions with people, we can have campaigns about awareness. But actually what we need is not to just go, you know, you shouldn't pick on autistic people or victimize autistic people. It's that you shouldn't victimize anyone for being different. That's not what we need to be doing. And if we do treat people like it's okay to be you, I think that will go a long way to, to changing society, which is a huge thing to do. But I think, you know, we can try. Wow, yes. That's a big thought to end on. Um, thank you, Amy. And thank you all for the expertise and advice um, that you've shared today. We're going to have a break now. And when we come back, um, we'll answer some questions that we've had from parents since the last show. Speak soon. Have you heard about the Northeast Autism Society's Family Development Team? We offer support to autistic people and their families before, during or after diagnosis. We have toddler groups, family workshops, support hubs and home visits. And we also have a private Facebook group you can join called Family Networking, where you can share experiences, tips and support with other families just like you. Find us on Facebook under Northeast Autism Society Family Networking. So when the Northeast Autism Society said they were doing um, a, a podcast around masking, um, we got some questions from parents um, of autistic children who uh, wanted to know certain things about it. So if that's OK, I'll just put these questions to you. Um, the first question uh, we had was from a parent who'd heard about burnout and wanted to know a little bit more about it and how it relates to masking. Um, so, Kieran, if you could just explain what burnout is. It uses up a huge amount of energy on a day-to-day -day basis. And if you think about it in terms of a, a mobile phone battery, when you first get your mobile phone, the battery lasts for hours. You never have to recharge. You, like, you can go days without recharging it. And then over time, the more you use it, the more you recharge it, it holds less charge each time you charge it up. Eventually, you get to the point where you have to get your phone plugged in all the time in order to keep it running because the battery's just completely burnt itself out. And that's what's happening with autistic people. So it isn't all directly related to masking. Um, you know, it's just existing in the world is, is hard. Um, but there's this whole other extra layer of work that you are having to do as an autistic person and also as a disabled person because of the barriers that you hit because of being disabled and the, the specific barriers that you hit when you are autistic, um, all of that uses up all of your energy. And masking itself, compartmentalizing your brain like that and creating this other 
conscious version of yourself is huge and it sucks up all your energy reserves so if you think of it in terms of running a 100 meters race everybody's starting from the start line but you're starting 50 meters behind everybody else and then the next day you're starting 75 meters behind everyone else and then the next day you're starting 100 meters so all that adds up over time and um, we see small examples of burnout and time like the things that we've talked about kids withdrawing and um, getting to the weekend and just burying yourself under a duvet and not having the energy to kind of do anything and during the school holidays if we're talking about children and obviously this relates to adults as well but then over time because you never fully recharge it ends up where you hit this period of what we term as extreme burnout where you literally cannot live it's it um it's defined it's almost like regression you lose skills so the things that you could do yesterday you can't do today your body is tired um you get um autoimmune problems um you get problems with your gut your ability to communicate can't come out as well or, or you have to communicate in different ways that are less energy usage you cause yes energy usage your interpretation of your body's interpretation of sensory information becomes more exaggerated so things become louder or they become quieter or taste becomes stronger or smells become stronger or you can't smell anything at all um and it's often mistaken for depression because the physical aspects of it and the kind of mental sludge that you feel is mistaken you know it looks looks very much like depression and at the moment that's the only professional narrative that there is that you are depressed so autistic people in burnout are often given children as well are often given antidepressants and and given cbt and talking therapy and things like that when in actual fact what they need is to withdraw and recharge and you can navigate that through understanding yourself and meeting your own needs and but how many children understand themselves and are unable to meet their own needs or how many parents are unable to meet their children's needs well enough so so yeah so that, that that's what's burnout burnout is and masking plays a direct part in that as well thanks kieran is this something jody that comes up in your conversations much with parents um families yeah i mean um uh, uh, probably uh, about 90% of the young people that I work with are in autistic burnout. Um, you know, uh, it's, you know, listening to Kieran talk about it is one thing. Seeing a child in it is quite, um, dis it's distressing. It's distressing for everybody. It's distressing for um, parents um, particularly when the support isn't out there or the understanding isn't out there. Um, it's a really dire place for a young person to be, a, a, a child to be. And the recovery is long. You know, children, I, I've, I, I work with children who have lost their childhoods to masking and autistic burnout. Um, and I think it's really important that we do discuss it here because, you know, People will be coming along and listening to this and, and hearing about masking, but their child will very much be in burnout because of the masking for long periods of time. Um, it it requires a really, really low arousal approach. I, I, I describe it as stop the world, I want to get off. Literally, that child needs to be left. And what quite often happens is that when a child presents to uh, mental health services or an adult presents to mental health services and they're in autistic burnout like kieran said it's looked at as depression so then um, medications are suggested and cbt and talking therapy and you need to get out a little bit more you need to go for a walk every day um and actually all of that 
I'm not saying none of that is ever helpful, but some of it can be really detrimental to a child that literally just needs to withdraw and recharge. Um, loads of different professionals become involved. Uh, and you suddenly have people coming to the house and wanting to ask you questions. And it, it's, it can be so, so detrimental. And that actually, of you know, supporting some young people, the recovery can't actually start until everybody's buggered off um, and left them alone. And um and again, that's really problematic because if you are a parent saying, actually, I just want you to leave my child alone, you're then refusing services. You're then enabling them. Um, so you end up in this really, really difficult position of, you know what's right for your child, but but you're ticking boxes because otherwise you're going to be blamed for neglect. Um, it's a really, really important. I mean, we could sit here for you know, the whole time again and talk about autistic burnout between the three of us. Um, you know, there's various different resources on my website and Karen's website. And, you know, just just Googling autistic burnout and reading blogs from actually autistic people um, will give you a really, really good insight into um, where you or your child may be at and, and what can support them. Right. So if you've got a child who doesn't want to leave the house during the summer holidays, this might be the reason. Yeah. Yeah. If you've got a child that is refusing, uh, I work with lots of um, young people who are unable to attend school. Um, often burnout is the point. It can come on really suddenly. Um, you know, I think I think we've all described it as like hitting a brick wall where you, you're, you know, a child appear, appears to be tundering along quite well. And then suddenly, bam, literally, it can be really, really sudden. And it's a really I mean, it's really frightening. Um, as a parent, it's really frightening for a child who suddenly, you know, hasn't got a clue what's going on. They don't know they're autistic. They don't know they're masking. They don't know what any of those things are. And suddenly they're completely unable to function. Um, could I come on to another question? Um, somebody asked, does having um, a diagnosis make a difference to masking? Or does it uh, not have an impact? I'm happy to answer that one um, as someone who has only recently been diagnosed. I don't think a diagnosis in itself is the helpful thing. I think knowing that you're autistic is the helpful thing. So it's about having insight into your own identity, why you process and interact with the world in the way that you do, why you experience things differently to other people, um, why things might be a little bit more challenging sometimes than they are to others. And I think having that insight doesn't necessarily come from a diagnosis. We all know at the moment waiting lists are huge for both adults and children. Um, and so it can be years between realizing that you're autistic or thinking that you're autistic and having a professional confirm that. But being able to start to understand yourself, and I think often that, that comes in that waiting period where you're you know, waiting to interact with a professional, starting to think about your own experiences, your own behaviour and relate that to other autistic people, that's where you start to get that insight and start to learn about your own masking or your own self-monitoring and how that manifests. So yeah, knowing that you're autistic, I think, is a, is a huge thing in starting to unpack that for yourself. Kieran, you just wanted to add something about the diagnosis there. The process you go through after diagnosis is a reevaluation of your life and a reframing of your life and actually learning to accept um, 
for many people that they weren't at fault when they had perceived themselves as being at fault and that lots of problems in their lives may have been resolved or not had happened had they received that identification earlier and had they known and had other people known and so there's a lot of kind of things that you have to kind of look at and pick apart and readdress and that process itself of looking at traumatic experiences can also be traumatic so so it's quite common that people that get that diagnosis go through that period of burnout and from the outside looking in and hear this so often from kind of partners and parents and and kind of friends and family members that you know like well you didn't act that way before now you now you know you're autistic you're just acting autistically and all of a sudden you change your whole personality and stuff like that but actually what's happened is that that process of burnout post recognition causes your mask to fall apart you can't sustain it anymore because it's seen itself in the mirror, which the mask is designed for you not to see it as well as anybody else to see. So once that starts to crack and fall apart, your 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 authentic self starts to come out a little bit more. Your burnt out self will appear a little bit more. And burnout, basically for autistic people, is being unable to sustain masking. That's really fundamentally what it is. It's being able, not being able anymore to cover up kind of who we are or what our needs are and what our distress is and what our trauma is so so yeah so it's just it's really important that people recognize that that there isn't a sudden great personality shift that the person's exactly the same person as they were before but they might start stimming more they might start being more obviously autistic in some way because basically their mask has cracked and fallen to pieces and it isn't that they've been deceiving you it's just been that that's they've suppressed their entire life and all of a sudden now they cannot suppress any longer yeah, it's a very complex interplay of things, isn't it? Yeah, um, it is. We've had a variety of questions around, and I know we've covered this, but if we could uh, kind of just do a recap, how do I recognise masking behaviours in my child and what's the best way somebody says to support my child, somebody else says, how do I help them to unmask? Um, the best way to support all of this is to engender authenticity in them. And that comes from validating their experiences, helping them to understand who they are, what their needs are, and and the the things that they will need to be able to, to get through day-to-day life. Also helping them understand that people will treat them negatively. And that isn't always deliberate. Sometimes it will be deliberate. Um, but it's because there is a mis- massive misperception of, of what autism is out there. The the child themselves might feel stigmatized towards the label um, and towards their own experiences and their own experiences of being different. So, you know, you can't force a child not to feel that way, but you can validate their experiences and help them to understand that. And basically at home, you need to create as safe a place as possible for them um, where their needs are being met, where their sensory profiles are understood, where, you know, where the, where the trauma is recognized and, and talked about. Um, something that we do all the time with our children is that we don't hide them from things. If there are events going on in the world, we will talk about them. The the narratives around how trans people are being uh, um, talked about at the moment is a big topic of conversation in our house. And I have a, a nine year old and a near twelve year old and a thirteen year old. So you know these are these are children being you know we're having discussions adult discussions what would be perceived as adult discussions about really complex topics but they're important
important topics because they're important to my children and they're important to me and they're a part of our narrative and part of recognizing what's going on in the world and why people think the way that they do and lots of parents shy away from those difficult topics because we want to protect our children and yeah obviously we don't talk about graphic and gruesome things but we sometimes do and when the conversations get there but but you know it's about being open and honest and and removing that hierarchy Uh, we can only control that at home though we can't control what the rest of the world does so we have to empower our children to to be able to create safe spaces for themselves and be as authentic as they can and have as much control and autonomy and agency over their lives in order to be able to go out there and you know i'm i'm a privileged 43 year old nearly who um you know, I create my own safe spaces. I choose who I work with. I'm self-employed. I, I go where I want and I do what I want and I engage with who I want. But children don't have that much element of control over their lives. So we have to empower them as best we can so that when they do start to get control, they're ready to take it and they're ready to own it and they're ready to have those boundaries with people that we talked about. So that wraps up our two shows on masking. If you've got any questions or comments about anything you've heard, get in touch with us at info at ne-as.org.uk. In our next episode, we'll talk about sex and relationships. Um, That's at the end of November, so join us then. In the meantime, why not subscribe to This Is Autism on Apple Podcasts, Google or Spotify, so you never miss an episode and leave us a review and rate us. Um, You can also follow the Northeast Autism Society on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and TikTok or find us at www.ne-as.org.uk. Bye for now.